Hello, and welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Good morning. So, um, most people, you know, when they're growing up, and sometimes it kind of tapers off as you get to be older, but people kind of daydream about being wildly successful in something. Did you daydream about being wildly successful? And no, some people said no. I mean, for 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 me, you know, it was it was sports usually, you know, and you know he he fakes left, he goes right, he goes up for a three pointer, they win the game, you know. We would say that over and over as kids when we were playing. I'm not even any good at basketball, so um, you know, maybe some of you young you dream about being you know on the world of dance or the Voice or something like that. Maybe some of you want to be valedictorian. Maybe some of you want to be the president of the United States. Maybe some of you, when you were young, you wanted to date or marry the hottest person at your school. In high school, when I was supposed to be paying attention, I was often just kind of gay, you know, in a daze. And I would be imagining, because my sport was football, I would be imagining, you know, you're behind, the clock's running out, you run down the field and you score the winning touchdown, or you, or you dive into the end zone and catch it. And so that would be kind of my dream of, of wild success. Um, one time... Uh, we played a brief, it was about a 10-minute uh, demonstration game of rugby. This was the 49ers and the Chargers were playing in San Diego for a preseason game. And so right before the game started, we played. There were only like 40,000 people in the stands because it, the Chargers, they were giving away tickets back then. But um, so we were playing this game and we're behind and we're almost at the, and the time is just about to run out and they pass me the ball and I get to run in from about 30 yards out and 40,000 people started cheering. And it was very um, impressive. And it was exactly the kind of scenario I had imagined as a boy growing up. And it's it's a really strange experience if you've never experienced it. And it kind of made me wonder, wow, what about people like Tom Brady or um, uh, Steph Curry that, you know, they experience that week in and week out? What does that do to their soul? I I didn't have to worry about that because it only happened once. Um, I felt strongly that God wanted me to go into... Um, some kind of Christian ministry is my vocation. And, I, and I'm careful to say that because we often use the term uh, going to full-time ministry. Every Christian is a full-time minister. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are in full-time ministry. You may not have realized that till t- today, but you are. Some people are called to uh, spend much more of their time doing things like what I'm doing right now, teaching and preaching and you know, helping a church be organized or th- things like that. But whether or not you are um, you know, just digging ditches or, or, or teaching or changing diapers or collecting the trash or building houses or building rockets or flipping burgers or doing bookkeeping. It's all meant for people to flourish. If what you're doing is honest, if what you're doing is legal, if that's what God has called you to, that's what you're supposed to do. That's sacred. It's not better or worse to be a pastor. It, you just want to do what God tells you. And last week, we talked about God's presence in you, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will guide you. Not as clear with some people as with others sometimes, but he'll guide you. But all followers of Jesus are in full-time ministry. And although my undergraduate degree was in engineering, I love engineering, um, I was convinced that was how God wanted me to spend most of my time, so that would be my vocation. What do you think are the daydreams of people whose occupation is being a pastor? Now, if you're an attorney, and in the first service, Megan told everybody that she's an attorney, so 
then you probably daydream about winning some landmark you know, decision or something against corporate America or something like that. If you're a doctor, what do you daydream about? Oh, just, you guys remember Ben Carson did that first surgery separating uh, twins that were joined at the head, I think, or something? You know, that was monumental surgery. If you're, if you're uh, a rocket scientist, you want to get a rocket to Mars. If you're an astronaut, you want to walk on Mars. I daydreamed about God using me to heal people supernaturally and about God using me to preach for huge crowds and just people just being so moved they would turn their lives over to Jesus. Now, I think you should probably note that I did not daydream about becoming a male version of Mother Teresa caring for the dying in the streets of Calcutta. Nor did I daydream about pastoring a church of 50 people in rural Nebraska. Obviously, my childhood daydreams of scoring the winning touchdown in the championship football game were about how success would make me feel good. And success does make us feel good. And we were created to build, to create, to flourish, to, to get joy and a sense of achievement from doing things with excellence and, and successfully. What did God say after six days of creating, looking over everything, what did he say? He said, it's very good, not just good, very good. So it's good to strive for excellence and success. But unfortunately, most of us kind of base our self-worth on how that's going. Um, since we're all sinners in various ways and we see some of the crud inside of ourselves, that will often mean that we just struggle to feel valuable because we don't feel that successful. And although it's wonderful when you do things with excellence and succeed, that is not primarily why you're valuable, and I hope you know that, and I hope you leave with at least that today. You're valuable because you're loved. Probably my desire to score the winning touchdown really boils down to wanting to impress people so that they would love me. It's interesting, I had that one moment of about 10 seconds of fame in, in sports, uh, and then for the next four years, I lived with a bunch of Christian guys. And we invented all kinds of silly games. We would take the lid off of a, a margarine. It was margarine, not butter back then. Margarine. And one guy would get down at the long hall defending the doorway where we'd throw it and we'd have a blast. Or we would take a football that was waterproof and play football in the pool and have a blast. Or we would get in a big circle and throw frisbees around as fast as we could like this until somebody goofed. And then we'd, we'd laugh so hard we'd cry. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, it really isn't about performing in front of thousands and scoring the winning touchdown. This, with friends and being loved and laughing, this is just as satisfying, if not more so. Because what we're really seeking is to be loved. You are loved. Loved by God. And although there are some good things inside of you right now that are worthy, that are beautiful of God's love, there are also some bad things like selfishness and self-interest that really aren't that lovely. God doesn't just love you just because he does, and that's a famous theological phrase. He loves you partly because he sees the beauty that is there in spite of the tarnished nature of it, but he also is looking ahead to what you will become once you are fully transformed in the way that C.S. Lewis said that if you saw yourself now what you're going to be, you'd be tempted to worship. Right now, though, who are more loved by God than you can possibly fathom, 
possibly imagine, more than your mother loves you or loved you or your father or than your grandchildren. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal love, life. Believes what? And who Jesus is and what he's done. Loved you so much that he died on a cross for you that he experienced more pain than anyone ever has or ever will so that God's justice could be satisfied. Why? So that you can have a relationship because he loves you. When you love someone, what do you want? You want them to know you and love you back. God wants you to know him and love him back. Not because he gives you the power to heal the sick or other signs and wonders, not because he gives you health or wealth or safety or a wonderful family, but because he himself is amazing and beautiful and worthy of being loved. Now, for three weeks, we're doing a little series of looking at three important promises of God. Last week, we looked at that God gives us his spirit. He lives with us, in us. He will never leave us or forsake us. Today, we're looking at God's promise to give you supernatural power. And the part that you're expecting, I'm leaving kind of till the end. Would you please open an app or a Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1? And just kind of leave it open as we do this because it's a long passage. We're going to start at verse 3 of 2 Peter chapter 1. Starting at verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So what is being promised here regarding God's power? Anything that has to do with life or godliness, does that mean he will keep you alive physically? Well, yeah, you're, until it's time for you to go, and by the, that time you may want to because you may be just kind of falling apart. But he also means things pertaining to eternal life. See, true life is not simply what we're doing here physically. Jesus said... And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So real life is about knowing God. Knowing in the Bible is not what we think of as just cognitively knowing. Knowing has to do with a relationship. It's what's used between how a man and a woman know each other. It's about intimacy. God wants you to have a love relationship with him, to have real life is about fellowship with him. It's the reason you were created. Now, God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We call a triune God, and I do not understand that to the depths that I wish I did. But one thing it tells me, at least one thing, God exists in community. There is love and praise and honor and encouragement within the Trinity as they have existed for all time, and it is such an amazing experience for them that they said, we got to include more, more people. And so God created you. And it will end up that maybe millions, maybe billions of human beings will be invited into that experience of love and fellowship and encouragement. And God did that even though he knew it would be very, very painful for him to make that happen. Verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, pertain to godliness. Remember in Romans 8, um, we, we often go back there, it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And we don't really like to go on to verse 29 sometimes, we just like that the way it stands, but verse 29 says, for those whom he foreknew, 
he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. See, when God's going to do all things for your good, it's all things for your transformation into the image of Jesus. It's not necessarily all things pleasurable. And, that, and being transformed not as, doesn't erase your personality, your uniqueness. It's about what, what Peter's going to explain as we go forward. It's, it's about character. But God promises to use his supernatural power to make everything that happens help you become more like Jesus. Now that's, that's amazing because he's not saying that evil becomes good. Evil is evil. God weeps when you suffer. He weeps with you. But he's so powerful that he can turn the tables on evil just as when Jesus was crucified, the most evil thing ever done, and yet God turned the tables on it by his power to make it the biggest blessing in history. Verse 3, continuing, and through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So God wants you to experience his love, his glory, his excellence, his beauty. That's why he created you, to bless you, to love you, not to take something from you. Now, in a crowd like this, I would assume that at least some of you are here that are not, you, you haven't yet decided to be a follower of Jesus. You're here just kind of checking him out. And one of the things that... Um, often keeps people from deciding to actually follow Jesus is that they're afraid that he's going to take something away from them. You might even have some kind of a character flaw inside of you that you feel like, well, I kind of like that. That makes me cool. And you know, if I were to follow Jesus, he'd probably want to change that. Maybe make me honest or something like that. I want you to pause for a moment and think about this. This is a real question. Do you want... All the kind of stuff that you hear in churches that you read in the Bible, do you, all that about Jesus, do you want that to be true or would you really prefer that it's not true? Because most of us resist turning our lives over to Jesus because there's something we don't want to give up. So we sort of want all of this not to be true when that's the case. But I just ask you to reconsider the following. What do you really want? Don't you really want to experience love? Now, perhaps you're like me, and you've got some unhealthy, dysfunctional ways of, of feeling loved or important or valuable that are kind of working for you. For me, it's um, emotional eating. And you don't want to give those things up, maybe. None of them compare with being loved by Jesus. And if you turn your life over to Jesus, you'll only experience that, that love partially now, but in heaven it will be just phenomenally overwhelming. There's plenty of historical evidence that Jesus is who the Bible says he is and did what the Bible says he did. But if you don't want that to be true, you'll just throw all the evidence out because that's what humans do. Probably because there's something you don't want to give up. So think about it. Don't miss out on experiencing God's amazing love. The Apostle Paul, he was at the peak, perfect in his version of religion, looked up to big plans for the future, and he said, compared to knowing Jesus and experiencing his love and his power. It was all just like cow manure. Verse 4. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. That's kind of the passage for these three Sundays about God's promises, three of them anyway. Life is really tough. If you don't have a biblical worldview, I don't see how you can possibly make sense out of life other than it being meaningless. And even with a biblical worldview, it's still tough. But part of a biblical worldview 
is to say, I know the promises of God. I have this hope. It's coming. He's promised this. Continuing on, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, Peter does not mean that you'll become divine and be worshipped. You are and you will be loved, but only God is to be worshipped. He's talking about partaking of the divine character of God, and he's going to go on to give you a list of nine characteristics that have to do with character. He also doesn't mean that we are to completely uh, stop sinning or escape completely from it. He's going to talk in the passage as we read on about increasing. In other words, it's ongoing. Paul dis- uh, discusses this in Romans 6 that we used to be getting worse and worse and now we're getting better and better. No- none of the New Testament authors are saying that anybody's perfect and you can probably resonate with that. But they are saying that one of the marks of being a true follower of Jesus is you can look back and say, I'm not what I was. I'm not what I want to be. Not what I should be, but I'm not what I was in terms of the inner transformation that's going on. Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Does that passage remind any of you of a different passage? Do you think of Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit? Also nine things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We'll put up kind of both of them you can compare. They're not exactly the same because neither is trying to be exhaustive. They're saying these are the kinds of character qualities that demonstrate the character of God, what true goodness is. And these are the kinds of character qualities that will develop in your heart if you're a follower of Jesus. Because that's what the Holy Spirit's power does Everything that pertains to godliness is what it said here. If you are a follower of Jesus, in this life there will always be ongoing transformation on the inside, and that needs huge amounts of power and grace of the Holy Spirit. Now, when when I told you that we're going to talk about supernatural power today, that's probably not what you were hoping for. But I wanted to kind of lay that foundation, and now we're going to go on for the, for the rest of our time to talk about the things that we usually think of with supernatural power, okay? Jesus said, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That's one of the verses that I memorized early on as a follower of Jesus, and it encouraged me to daydream those daydreams about healing thousands of people or, or many people uh, becoming followers uh, when I would speak. Now, Jesus goes on that same evening to say, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked what? He asked for the cup to pass. He asked for him not to have to go to the cross. Did he get what he wanted? No. When Paul had some kind of ailment called his thorn in the, thrust, in the flesh, three times he asked God to heal him. And he'd been used to probably heal hundreds of other people, and yet God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We don't always get what we ask for. And one way to understand this passage about if you abide in me and my words abide in you, the more in fellowship you are with God, the more you understand his word, then the more you're likely to 
ask for things that God believes are best and see him work supernaturally. Now, I've been used by God to pray for people and see them be healed supernaturally, some of you. I've been healed myself supernaturally immediately as well as over time. I'm not wise enough to know why sometimes God does not do what I ask. But my favorite passage about this is this one. We'll put it on screen. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I don't feel like I have to be wise enough. I just ask for what I think will give joy all the way around. I try to look at myself as a spiritual toddler, asking my father for a brownie. Just as if my grandkids ask me for a brownie, I might give them one, but I'm not going to give them ten. Okay? God doesn't give us what he knows will not be good for us, but what will be ultimately good. That's why I love when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So I like to look at it like this, that God gives us, he gives you, I know that slide's going to change, there you go. God gives us what we would ask for if we knew what he knows. He's not going to give you too many brownies, he's going to give you what's good for you. We often ask God to do powerful miracles that have only a temporary effect, to heal someone, to give them a job, physically protect us from harm. And those are good things. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, what eventually happened to Lazarus? He died. When Jesus fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fish, what eventually happened to those people? They got hungry again. When one of the most really powerful miracles in the book of Acts, Peter is chained between guards. An angel comes in. The chains fall off. The guards stay asleep. The angel leads him out, and he escapes. What eventually happens to Peter? He's caught again, and he's beheaded. Much later, after much ministry, but those are are, are temporary miracles. And I encourage you to pray for these kinds of signs and wonders because oftentimes, especially where the gospel is breaking through, uh, God uses these to, to, to break through to people and have them understand that Jesus really is who he claims to be. So it's, it's great for people to be healed or have a vision or a dream or get a job. But there are supernatural miracles that last forever. They have eternal effects. When the Holy Spirit woos and wins someone's heart, and they become a follower of Jesus, that lasts forever. When the Holy Spirit transforms your heart into these characteristics that Peter has listed there, or that Paul lists in the fruit of the Spirit, it lasts forever. Paul says, you take your godliness with you. Doesn't mean you're not gonna be transformed in the next life, but in some way that's really important for your experience of eternity. Every ribbon on this wreath Back in the corner on that one, around the corner there's another one. Every ribbon represents an answered prayer by one of you. God is doing a lot of miraculous stuff. Not every single thing we ask for, but a lot of miraculous stuff. So I urge you, pray. Pray for people to be healed. Pray for people to have dreams and visions. Pray for the Holy Spirit to woo and win their hearts. And I would encourage you, on your smartphone, put a little reminder that pops up every day to pray for three people that you would really love to see the Holy Spirit woo and win their heart. So after I've been following Jesus for a few years, 
I became very concerned that there was one particular area that was causing me a lot of problems. Uh, I would rebel in this area. I would feel convicted, come to godly grief, repent, experience God's forgiveness and restoration uh, of my relationship with him. But not too long after that, I would sin again in the same area. Now, when I heard stories of other people that I was hanging out with of, of just these, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit liberating them and from this and, and from other sins, I became convinced that what I really needed was an additional amount of Holy Spirit power. That was the solution to my dilemma. Now, much later, I found out that many of those liberations and victories over, over sin were short-lived. They were temporary. Many of those people actually later abandoned Jesus. It wasn't what would keep them strong with Jesus, and we'll talk about that next week as our, our third promise. Like most young men, the most difficult area in my heart was lust. And like most young people today, I had grown up looking at it as anything to do with the opposite sex was recreational. Well, that's not all it is. And rather than give me a swift victory, God's Spirit worked gradually but firmly to change the way I thought and make me into a man who wanted to be a faithful, just faithful to one woman for life. That was a huge change from the way I grew up. But God did it. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you. Now, some of you, I don't even know, but you have an addiction. Lots of different addictions out in this audience. Some of you just have some area, either anger or bad-mouthing or bitterness or something that has just been rooted in your heart for years, and you need the Holy Spirit's power to be transformed. Today, in a few moments, if the band would come on up, we're going to experience communion together. And communion is a mysterious experience in which the Holy Spirit works powerfully. And we're also going to have people who are back at that wreath that would love to pray with you and around the corner at this wreath who would love to pray with you. And what I would encourage you is if there's someone that you just really would love to see them wooed and won by the Holy Spirit, go pray at one of the wreaths for them. If there's something you need in the way of just more the Holy Spirit work powerfully in your heart and you know what it is if God's nudging you, then go and, and be honest and pray with them. Or even if you have to keep it secret, but just get them to pray for you. One of the most, doesn't even use the word power, but one of the most powerful statements in the Bible is, we know that in everything, God works for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, that he turns the tables powerfully that everything that happens in your life will help to make you more like Jesus. It requires a lot of power. Would you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come now and work powerfully as we remember the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. That as we look to you and the same power that raised him from the dead, we would humbly turn over to you what we know you want to do in our hearts. That we would confidently talk with you about wooing and winning the hearts of people we love who aren't yet your followers. 
We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work very strongly in this room as we do this together. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.